As I read those stories, I feel terribly sympathetic for the followers of Jesus because I hear hope there, not history. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then what's all the fuss about? Why would his disciples live and die for a lie? Why would the Christian faith spread from a handful of believers, 120 in the upper room, 500 who witnessed the resurrection, why would that small number zealously spread their faith that there were, by the end of the Roman era, 20 million believers. Those are the numbers in this phenomenal spread of a faith that they knew was fraudulent? I'm sorry, you don't die for a lie. We have to explain two historical facts. We have to explain the empty tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and we have to explain the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection to his disciples. Any theory of history that wants to explain how the disciples came to believe these things has to explain those two facts. The idea that the disciples would not die for a lie is a very common argument that our side uses, and it has a great deal of strength, particularly when we look at the social background of the New Testament. What the disciples were claiming in context was astonishing and incredible, because Jesus, as one crucified, had been subjected to an incredibly shameful death, and as such he had been judged by the powers that be to be completely unworthy of recognition. And by the accounting of the disciples and the people who lived at that time, God, having allowed this, would have said the same thing. This man is not deserving of any honor whatsoever. They would have lost everything and gained nothing by claiming something like this. There were much easier things they could have done, simply recognized him as a great teacher and started their own movement. That would have been extremely low risk. To go this far and to claim that he had risen from the dead was extremely high risk and had no payoff whatsoever. When we say that someone is going to lie about something, they're going to do it for some benefit. And the question that has to be answered is, what benefit the disciples get out of claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead? In claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, they were saying he deserved honor that the rulers of that age said he did not. And they opened themselves up, therefore, to every kind of social persecution. Since the beginning of the resurrection of Christ, there have always been... Uh, voices trying to uh, deny the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection is one of the most attested events in history. It's attested by witnesses who turn from being absolute cowards to being people that would not relent of the testimony they had that Jesus rose, that they saw the risen Jesus, even under extreme painful torture, their skin being ripped off, being burned at the stake, being fed to the lions. So this is, uh, these are people who previously, at the slightest uh, mention, would deny their own, their own family and their own you know, uh, community, as Peter, standing in the courtyard when Jesus is being tried, denies that he's even from the same neighborhood. So these are people who suddenly get strength because they actually saw it. The testimony about the risen Jesus is the most credible event in history and as an attorney who used to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Southern District of New York, uh, if you had to look over the record, you'd have to say that this evidence is irrefutable. In his book, The Historical Jesus, John Dominique Crossan is clear about the agenda behind his attack on the truth of the resurrection. Remember that in Crossan's mind, 
the resurrection is not plausible and the gospel accounts are not reliable. Therefore, he uses historical reconstructions based upon what he believes might have happened. He writes, if you cannot believe in something produced by reconstruction, you may have nothing left to believe in. Crossan's attack on the truth of the resurrection in the big picture is really an attack on the nature of truth itself. According to Crossan, truth fluctuates from generation to generation. He writes, It is not that we find once and for all who the historical Jesus was way back then. It is that each generation and century must redo that historical work and establishes its best reconstruction. It is that Jesus reconstructed in the dialogues, debates, controversies, and the conclusions of contemporary scholarship that challenges faith to see and say how that is for now the Christ, the Lord, the Son of God. In Crossan's reconstructed version of the story, Jesus' death was accidental the type of execution that the oppressive and arbitrary justice of the Romans might carry out on any given day. In the days following the crucifixion, one or more of the apostles may have invented a story about Jesus' resurrection from the dead in order to give themselves some credibility. And then some followers of the apostles, who just happened to be scribes, may have recorded the event as though it were history, another unfortunate accident according to Crossan. But Crossan fails to answer some obvious questions. If the resurrection were a hoax, why would there be a Christian movement in the years after Jesus' death? If Christ's death were an accident, why would there even be a scribe who would want to record a distorted record of Jesus' death? Lacking answers to these questions, as well as any real evidence for their claims, the scholars of the Jesus Seminar speculate endlessly as to how and why the resurrection story came about. Some scholars think the resurrection stories were borrowed from Eastern pagan cults popular throughout the Roman world at the time, called mystery religions. And one of the things I believe that early Christians did is they took the model of the mystery religions. They took that story and retold that story as the story of Jesus. For centuries, we've, you know, had people attempting to hack away at the gospel, the detractors. None of this is new. And what's funny is that, that our generation seems to believe they've come up with some new evidence. Well, if any of this had, been, had any validity, uh, if any of the Jesus as a myth or Jesus didn't exist or, 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 or false gospels kind of perspective that people are building on in this generation, if any of it had validity, it would have been trotted out centuries before. Far better scholars, far greater minds, far better trained people have tried to disprove the gospel. And they would have employed these, these arguments. But they haven't. And the reason is they have no credibility. So I don't think that movie producers and blog writers today uh, are going to be able to do what scholars could not do in previous generations. If the Bible is true, then it is the story. The devil doesn't have any stories. That there are no real stories in, in the mythologies of the ancient world. I, instead, there is the one true story that then gets distorted or diminished by 
all of the other cultures, belief systems, and doubters and skeptics of the world. So what that means is, is that when we see in the Epic of Gilgamesh, for instance, um, reflections of and echoes of the flood story, we should expect that. I mean, if the flood story is actually true, then of course other cultures are going to have redacted versions of it. So to, so to talk about Jungian archetypes or uh, these kind of proto-myths underlying all of the, of the great myths of the ancient world is really to miss the most obvious point of all. If there is one true account, of course there are going to be variations and riffs off of that one true account that will exist in the literature of the world. Um, the, the, the claim of the Bible is that this is the one true story. To find derivative stories out there in other cultures only is supportive of that thesis. It doesn't diminish it in any way. Well, there are a huge lists of these supposed divine God-men that are said to have also been crucified, also been buried, also risen from the dead after three days. But I find each time I look into these that one of two things has happened. Either the information is completely wrong, in other words, they never actually were crucified, or what has happened is that the story of them being crucified happened hundreds of years after the time of Jesus and probably was influenced by Christian missionaries. One of the more prominent examples of someone who's written on this thesis are co-authors Timothy Freak and Peter Gandhi. Uh, there are a couple of British writers who wrote a book entitled The Jesus Mysteries. Uh, quite effectively for their symbolism, they put on the front cover of their book a picture of an amulet depicting Dionysus as crucified like Jesus. Appropriately enough, when you look into the origins of that amulet, you find in the very resource they used to get that picture that that amulet was declared a forgery. And that's not an authentic amulet depicting Dionysus. And so not, it's very appropriate, I think, that they have a forgery on the cover of their book. Well, the only one of these pagan godmen that really has any hope as a viable candidate is the Egyptian deity Osiris, who reportedly was killed, cut into several pieces, and then was put together again and supposedly rose from the dead. The problem with comparing him is that, first of all, it is not a resurrection in the Jewish sense. A resurrection, as Jesus underwent, was a case of a dead body being glorified by God and receiving divine energies that brought it to life again. Whereas in the case of Osiris, what happened with him was a function of the way the Egyptian gods worked. Their bodies essentially never died, and so you could put their bodies back together after they were cut apart, sort of like a Frankenstein monster. And that's simply the way things work. In the other Egyptian mythologies, we have the gods taking off pieces of their bodies and lending them to other gods. The Norse god Baldr allegedly being crucified would be one of the least viable examples because the Norse legends would have to post-date Jesus and Christian missionary activity among those peoples by literally a thousand years. The writers of the New Testament also mention the mystery religions, most notably the apostles Peter, John, and Paul. What is being described here is Gnosticism an Eastern cult that had followers the world over at the time of the Roman Empire. In the time of Jesus, even Judaism had succumbed to the effects of the ancient mystery religions. But do similarities among stories told by cults and mystery religions disprove the resurrection of Jesus? Let's look at some evidence. According to the Apostle Paul, 
writing in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, there were over 500 eyewitnesses, including the apostles, who saw Jesus after the resurrection. There is also the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the blood of the martyrs in the first century. Many of the eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection died as martyrs for their faith. It would be hard to imagine people dying for what they knew was a fraudulent claim. Well, this recent theory about a lost tomb of the family of Jesus uh, reached into some significance for a collection of names that was found in a family tomb. Uh, particularly Jesus, son of Joseph, was listed. Uh, Mary was listed in there. The name Mary was held by a quarter of Jewish women at the time. According to reports, this tomb had 35 skeletons in it. And just by that accounting, you're likely to find at least one or two Marys anyway. Supposedly, the ossuary said, Mary the Master, or Mary who was known as Master. And the connection was made immediately to this as Mary Magdalene by the theorists about this tomb. But in order to reach this conclusion, they had to go to a 4th century heretical document, the Acts of Philip, where they said Mary Magdalene was called a master. But that's not at all true. When you look at that document, she is not specified as Mary Magdalene. And in fact, the leading scholar on this subject, one that they actually used, does not say that it's Mary Magdalene, but rather that the woman there is a conglomeration of Mary Magdalene and Mary, the sister of Martha. Uh, there are innumerable tombs and archaeological discoveries. Uh, every day there are new discoveries in, in the land of Israel. Every time they uh, you know, pave a new road, every time they plow a new field, they find new things. So the fact that James Cameron and his crew we're able to, to, to find a tomb with familiar names and, and all of that is not particularly unusual. Several things that are interesting about this. First of all, uh, virtually all of the scholars that he relied on have since retracted their statements. They've backed out and they've said, you know, this is not what it says it is, uh, what we said it was, and, and we don't really have solid evidence. So this is just... This one more demonstration that through the ages, every time somebody throws up a supposedly ironclad argument against the integrity of the Gospels, it doesn't take much time at all, and it doesn't take much academic integrity at all to be able to poke all kinds of holes in it. James Cameron made a huge mistake, and that mistake was to attack the Gospels. Um, if he thinks he's smarter than 20 centuries of skeptics, you know, Lord bless him. If we don't understand why he could be executed, then we miss the political passion that animated his mission. And when we turn the story of Jesus instead into uh, the eternal sacrifice for sin that makes our forgiveness possible, then we really set aside that which mattered so much to him, namely the poor, the untouchables, uh, the suffering of people in the world. The epitome of liberalism is the false dichotomy between the social gospel and eternal salvation. In fact, 
there is no contradiction between the two. Christ lived a perfect life, not only to be an example for us, but actually, according to Scripture, to be the second Adam, to fulfill the covenant of righteousness so that His righteousness may be imputed to us. In Christ's death, we find forgiveness for our sins, not because He died as a martyr for the truth, but because He became sin on our behalf. His eternal sacrifice through His death to atone for sin doesn't subtract in any way from the moral example of His perfect life. If anything, it gives it deeper meaning.